we've been following the life of Jacob, and as we've been going through here, uh, we just see a guy who is a kind of a, a deceiver, a conniver, a manipulator by nature, and that's kind of, that's his innate personality. I think it was ingrained to him by his parents, and uh, so here he is traveling on in life. He gets kind of excommunicated from his home. His older brother wants to kill him. He's on the road, and he puts his head down weary in a place of separation from everybody else and everything, going, leaving the home that he'd always known, going to a place that he was not familiar with. And he put his head down upon a rock, and then God spoke to him. And he met the Lord there, and he was a changed man. He wasn't totally uh, uh, Christianized yet, so to speak. He wasn't uh, uh, perfect but he was on his way, and we could see that he was a changed man, that he became a worshiper of God. And that place where he was was called Luz, and that means separated. And, he, and, and sometimes when we feel like we're in a place where we are separated from God, we, he's not here, he's not present, he's not acting, he's not, where is it, where are you, God? And he woke up to the reality after God introduced himself to him as uh, standing seated on the throne and angels descending and ascending or ascending and descending upon the earth and he was Lord over all and he woke up to the reality that wow God is in this place God is here I just wasn't aware of it. I, wasn't a, I wasn't sensitized to it and so Jacob became sensitized to the things of God he had grown up around God he had grown up seeing God, what God had done through his father and his grandfather but now, as he's away from home for the first time, God speaks to him. He says, hey, I am God, and I am here, and I am present. And he named that place Bethel, which means house of God, which will be important as we're reading today. And so, this uh, brother of ours goes on, he goes to a place, uh, Padam Aram. He finds this woman that he absolutely adores and loves, and he also gets introduced to her uncle, and so he says, hey, uh, Jacob, I see you love uh, Rachel here. And why don't you go and work for me seven years? Works for him seven years. And it was as if it was like a day to him. He was so in love. It was awesome. And so the marriage night comes. They go in the tent. And he wakes up the next morning, and it's her sister Leah. Old, easy on the eyes, the Bible says. <laughs> he freaks out. Well, no, wakes up, and you're going, how can that happen? Obviously, in those days, he, they, they were veiled from head to toe. Who knows what the scenario was, but he woke up, he got mad at Laban. How in the world could you deceive me like this? Why would you do this to me? He felt just so betrayed. And if you remember earlier, in his life, what did Jacob do to his father? He pretended to be someone else. And his father, his senses deceived him. God is letting Jacob meet himself in Laban. And so this is beginning a wonderful relationship between these two that will go on for years. So Jacob works another seven years, gets Rachel. So he has these two sisters as wives. Wonderful scenario. I don't recommend that to anybody. And these... And the thing is, the one that Jacob loves, she can't have any children. And that's just got to be an incredible burden and source of strife. And so, but it says that God saw that Leah was unloved. 
Leah was unloved, and so guess what? She has children. God opens her room, and she starts having children. And she starts naming her children. Hey, maybe because I have this kid, now Jacob will love me. Oh, the God has, God has given me another one. And, and you know, she just, it's just a ploy for the love of this man who really doesn't love her. And she's thinking that having children and giving him stuff will change his heart when he loves Rachel. And so Rachel sees this going on, and what does she do? She goes, well, I'm going to go ahead and give my handmaiden, my servant here to Jacob, and have kids through him. And so this creates another scenario. We enter in three people into the situation. A lot of baby mamas going around, right? And then, so Leah, she stops conceiving, and then she does the same thing with her. And so you have these four mothers with all these kids being born, except for Rachel, and we'll, and we'll end chapter 29 with that. And you've got this wonderful family dynamic going on where everybody loves each other and there's no arguing, fighting, there's no favoritism going on. There's just this esteeming one another, really healthy environment for kids. And we kind of, le- we kind of left it last week just looking at that scenario and going, doesn't that just kind of, isn't that a cross-section of our culture? I mean, with, with where we are, we might not have two wives and all that stuff, but we definitely have had two wives or three wives or four wives. And these scenarios that enter into our lives as people living on earth in sinful bodies. And the question is, how can God possibly work? How can God possibly redeem and work through these situations that we are in or that we are around? And the fact is, when you're looking at that chapter, you're going, oh man, this is a mess. And your eyes are down in it. But as you pull back, you realize that the Messiah came through Leah's, one of Leah's children, Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we see that the 12 tribes were actually from these kids. And we even see, as you, as you even move forward in chapters, you see the birth of, of Joseph from Rachel, the one Jacob loved. And so guess who everybody else hated? Jacob. Why does he get thrown in the pit? Yeah, there's a lot more going on to the story, right? Then he just got a coat. Oh, man, jealous of him. No, they, there were some problems going on. And God even uses this scenario to where Jacob is put in a position of authority that we'll talk about to be a blessing to all the nations and keep people alive in time of disaster. God will work through our families. God will redeem the time and, and the mistakes we've made as we seek him, as we call out to him, as we ask. And so there, just have hope. And I would say also get to know these people in these scenarios because this is the world we're called to minister in. It's messy. It's uh, full of problems and complications, but we have, to, we have to depend upon our Lord Jesus for, for life and for all these things. And so we, we, we read at the end of chapter 30, um, well, actually the middle of chapter 30, verse uh, 24, it says, uh, 22, it says, Then God remembered Rachel, and he listened to her and opened her womb, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace, and she named him Joseph. And she said, May the Lord add to me another son. And so chapter, in uh, verse 25, it says, And it came to pass, excuse me, I'm reading out of New King James. My notes, for some reason, I switched over 
And so I put it up there for you, New King James Version. I know you're reading on NIV. It's just two weeks in a row. Sorry about that. Uh, and it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, hey, send me away that I may go to my own place, to my country. I finally have a child, my own family. I want to get out of here. Give me my wives and my children for whom I've served you and let me go for you know my service which I have done for you. And Laban said to him, please stay if I have found favor in your eyes for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. And then he said, name your wages and I will give it. Two people taking advantage of one another. It's pretty funny here. Two souls just linked. I'm getting wealthy off of you. I don't want you to go. Please stay. Jacob's like, well, let me take advantage of that. Can I please go ahead and yeah, name your wages? And so Jacob said to him, you know that I have served you and how your livestock has been with me. For what you have done before I, I came was little. And it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming. And now, when shall I also provide my own house? Verse 31, and so he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. Oh, you're not going to have to give me anything. If you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Let me pass through all your flocks today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and these shall be my wages. Now these were the recessive ones, the less expensive, less common. Just let me have the ones that really don't make a difference. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come uh, when the subject of my wages comes before you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it is with me. So you know which one's yours, you'll know which ones are mine. And Laban said, oh, that it were according to your word. So we removed that day all the male goats that were speckled and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted. Everyone that had some white in it and all the brown ones and among the lambs and gave them into the hands of his sons. And then he put a three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Now Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar. And this is where it gets really fun, everybody. Now Jacob took uh, for himself rods of green poplar and from almond and chestnut trees and peeled the white stripes and then exposed the, uh, the white which was in the rods. And the rods which he had peeled, he set before the flocks in the gutters or in the troughs in the watering troughs where the flock had came to drink, and that they should conceive when they came to drink. And so the flocks conceived before the rods, and the flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. Then Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face forward, I'm sorry, toward the streak and all the brown in the flocks of Laban. But he put his own flocks by themselves and did not put them with Laban's flock. And after it came to pass, whenever the stronger livestock conceived, that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods. But when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's, and the stronger were Jacob's. <laughs> Wonderful. Thus the man became exceedingly prosperous in her large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. He has this breeding program to where he's like genetically engineering things and pushing the, the, the recessive ones onto his uncle and keeping the great ones for himself. And so what we're going to find is this is actually at the direction of the Lord. It's like, what? It's pretty interesting. We'll, we'll see that in just a minute. 
But as the result of this increase, Jacob's flocks, they become dominant and Laban's become weak. Chapter 31, now Jacob heard the words of Laban's son saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's and from what our father's he has acquired all his wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. No kidding. You start cutting into a man's livelihood at attitudes change. But the sons of Laban were upset that Jacob was cutting into their father's wealth because one day it would be theirs, right? And because Jacob's now getting the better end of the deal, Laban, whose relationship with Jacob was based upon the blessing that he received from Jacob, was now not liking Jacob too much. And we could see this from Laban from the beginning of what kind of relationship he had with, uh, with Jacob. It was based upon what can I get out of this relationship? It was a taking relationship. And we see that way back when we're introduced with Eleazar. Abraham sent Eleazar to find a bride for, for Isaac, which is Jacob's dad. Sends him far away. Eleazar shows up, puts the gold, uh, the gold gifts and stuff on um, Rebecca, Laban's sister. Laban says, brother, come on in, stay for a while, and starts, you know, enticing him and saying, no, you got to stay, but he almost would not let him leave. He could see the benefit of having this guy around. Finally, he takes off. So when Jacob shows up here later, same thing. Come here, stay for a while. Come, we're all family. Let's hang out. And they have this dialogue about wages right away. And Laban puts this plan in motion. I'm going to get everything I can out of this guy. And so knowing that Jacob came from a rich family, enticing, he enticed him to stay for a while, and now he's reaping all the benefits. There wasn't a really good motive there. And so they were definitely taking advantage of them. And when the blessings dried up, Laban's heart was revealed. He didn't favor Jacob anymore. Circumstances, they reveal our hearts. When we stop receiving from people, it shows what our love is. It shows what our love is when it becomes a one-way street. And this is why um, marriages, they, they dry up and they die. And it's so easy because we're not getting anything anymore. Why aren't my needs being met? And we can become self-focused, which is natural, by the way, but it's not spiritual. It's not the new man. For God so loved that he gave. We're become givers, not takers. And that has to be a work of the Spirit in our lives. That crucifying of self and say, not my will, but your will, Lord. And so we see that uh, Laban's heart was laid bare. And it says, then the Lord said to Jacob, in this hostile environment, he said, return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. Jacob, it's time to come back home. And so God speaks to Jacob to make some changes, to make a move, to come back home. And now Jacob has heard from the Lord, but now he has to convince his wives to leave the land that they've always known, where they've come from, their inheritance, and to come back with him. And so Jacob, verse 4, sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field to his flock. And he said to them, I see your father's countenance. It's not favorable, for, favorable towards me as before. But the God of my fathers has been with me. And as you know, 
that, I've, uh, that with all my might, I've served your father. Yeah, kind of. Wives, you, you know I've given my 100%. I've worked hard. I've worked for each of you for seven years. You know I didn't want to work for you seven years later. So, you know, you know <laughs> just kidding. But he goes and, and he works for seven years and, and then another seven and then another six. And he, and he goes, yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages 10 times. But God didn't allow him to hurt me. If he said thus, speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And if he said thus, the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. Whatever he said my wages would be was blessed. God was with me in this. And so God had taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Wives, your dad is a deceiver. Have you ever met anyone else like him? (laughs) You know, and it was Jacob. In reality, when Jacob looks at Laban, he sees a reflection of his own flawed character. And it's really interesting that he's not seeing this clearly when he's describing this fault in Laban. The flaws and faults, I love what John Corson said about this. He said, the flaws and faults that I often recognize in others are often the very flaws and faults that are my own. Isn't that true? When we recognize the faults and flaws in others immediately, we should begin praying for them. And in turn, God will give us discernment concerning our own hearts. Uh, yesterday I was reading uh, Oswald Chambers' devotion. Does anybody ever read uh, My Utmost for His Highest? Well, yesterday there was a section in there talking about discernment. And it said, when we, dis- when we discern that other people are not growing spiritually and allow that discernment to turn to criticism, we block our fellowship with God. God never gives us discernment so that we may criticize, but that we may intercede. That's pretty... It's a call for us to intercede, not criticize. I struggle with that. And when we discern flaws and faults in others, we should be driven to prayer, not persecution. How many of you struggle with that? Okay. I know a couple of you do that didn't raise your hand. <laughs> so Matt, are you saying that, we, uh, that we're never to address these issues that we see in people just to love them? Sometimes I feel like that's what I really need to do is just shut up, you know, because my heart's right, not, not right. And that's, that's, I think that's the heart of it. No, because that definition of love is not the love that Jesus and, and models and teaches. Jesus said not to judge unless we be judged, right? And we always stop there. Don't judge. Don't judge me. And it's like, right. Don't be the judge and jury and executioner. What is our motive in speaking into other people's lives? And that's what we have to ask ourselves when we open our mouths or when we see each other, when I open my mouth. Don't judge unless you be, you know, unless you be judged. But he proceeds right after that saying, says, first, if you see a speck in your brother's eye, it's clear, isn't it? Make sure that that's not in your own eye as well. First, go check out your own eye. Go search your own heart. Open up the scripture. It should drive us to prayer when we see that in other people. And say, hey, is this going on in me, Lord? Because I might be sensitized to it because I see it in them. Lord, take it out of my eye. And then he says, take it out of your eye so that you can see clearly to go help your brother. 
It's not that we aren't to help one another. It's the heart in which we help each other that matters to God. We can be right doctrinally. We can be right in all these things. But where's our heart in it? And so these things that uh, God is constantly teaching me, and I know that he's teaching us as a, as a body and church and our families, discernment is a gift from God for the edification of the church, discern, discerning motives and where things are coming from. It's an awesome gift in the body of Christ and needed because look at the situations like that Jesus faced. Peter, in one second, he said, who do you, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And what did Peter say? You are the Christ, you're Messiah. And what did Jesus say? He said, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. That did not come from Wikipedia. That came from your Father in heaven. You did not Google that stuff. It was downloaded to you from the Father. And then within that chapter, within a few verses, Jesus starts to explain, I've got to go to the cross. And out of Peter's mouth, what happens? He says, no, you're not to go to the cross. And what does Jesus turn around and say? Get thee behind me, Satan. In one moment, Peter discerned the will of God. In the second moment, he was being an instrument of the enemy. That's crazy. Jesus loved Peter. He loved him fiercely enough to speak the truth to him. Peter, that's not from flesh and blood. That's from your father. That's from Satan. And this edified Peter's life. This would be an ongoing relationship between the Lord and Peter. And then Peter and his disciples and their disciples and their disciples. And here we are today. The ministry of the Lord Jesus. Truth in love. Truth in love. Very powerful examples. But it's same with us as a church right now. We should be driven to prayer, not prosecution. Father, this is what I see. What is truth? Ask me, Lord. You know, just asking the Lord, what, what do you see? Is what I see what you see? Is that where your heart is beating? Sorry, this thing's driving me crazy. And we do that personally first in our own hearts and then we can go to others. And so Jacob's pointing out to his wives, man, their dad is a deceiver. At the same time, he can't see that in himself very well. And that happens to all of us. And now we're given another vital piece of the information regarding this business plan with the flocks. Now, I know it sounded weird, but he says in verse 10, and it happened, he's speaking to his wives. At the time, I just can't get used to saying it, he's speaking to his wives, it's just weird. And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived, verse 10, that I lifted my eyes and I saw a dream, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. And then the angel of God, he spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift your eyes now and see. All the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Jacob Yes, Lord, I'm going to give you these flocks. I'm going to give you the plan. And Jacob, he went and responded and said, yes, Lord, and he did it. The business plan it was unconventional. It seemed weird. It didn't seem like the normal thing to do. But he stepped out in faith, and he followed what the Lord had said. He heard from the Lord, and he did it. You know, to be with the flocks, to set up the stakes, to separate the flocks, the plan worked out. Uh, the way the Lord wanted. And Jacob, he did it. He responded. 
And this kind of shows us uh, how to worship him, how to please him, how to follow him, uh, how, how to love others. We, you know, we have the word that shows us these things, and it's unconventional. Many times it's unconventional. No way. They've got to come to me first. They're the one who wronged me. Let them come and grovel. Right? The Lord says, if you're going to worship me, leave your gift at the altar and go take care of them first. That's love. That's hard. That's like one of those weird things you stuck in the thing. No way, man. I'm not doing that. Okay. You want to be blessed. You want to be in my, my will, my love. Then follow after me. And it's in his word that we find out how that happens. And it's his spirit who empowers us to do it. And so as we begin to step out in faith, he, with the blueprint of life that he's given us, we experience the blessings of God. How many of you want the blessing of God on your life? It's right here. He's given it to us, his word. He's laid it out. And we simply read it and we say, Lord, this is what you're doing. I see a gap between who I am and where I ought to be, but I step out in faith. Lord, help. And he will empower us as we step out. But quite often we see the gap and we go, oh, that's going to be impossible. I can't reach out to that person. I can't change my life. I can't give this up. I can't deny myself. I won't follow him. I won't. Who's Lord? I am. But he calls us to this journey of faith where we say, not my will, but your will, Lord. What is your will concerning this? James, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask, and he will give it liberally. And we step out and we say, okay, Lord, we believe you're leading us this way. Let us step. And we start moving, and God provides. Talked about the river last week. The, the Jews, they were out in the wilderness for 40 years, and you feel like you're in the wilderness for 40 years. And all the unbelieving generation had to die off. I'm not talking about age. I'm talking about heart, right? They had to die off. And when they were called to go into the new land, they had to step across a river. The first one was, was, was the parting of the Red Sea. But this time, they had to step out into the river and step on the water and go across this river. How would you like to do that to some of these rivers out here? Big old Northwest rivers. That's what they seem like. But God asked us to trust him and to step and as we step, and it was as the priests put their foot in the water, the water parted. It wasn't before. They had to step out. They had to trust what God said and move. And then God showed himself strong. Because God operates in faith. Not the faith that is whatever we want God to say. It's the faith in what he's already said. I believe what you've said. And I will live my life upon it and I will step. You say to love, I will love. You say to repent, I will repent. You say to do these things, and I will do it. And the world does not need another program. They need God. They need to see him moving and to know that if they put all of their life upon him, that they will hit dry ground. And that is what we are representing. We are representing that trust and that faith in him. And so let it flow in our lives. Don't let things stop us, no matter how weird the plan might be. When we hear from the Lord, we move. Amen? So Jacob responded to the vision God gave him. Here I am. Okay, move forward.
And God reminds him. He says, hey, I want you to go back now. In verse 13, he revealed, he's, again, he's still relaying this to his wives. He says, the Lord said to him, I, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made that vow. Now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. Remember 21 years ago, Jacob. Remember when we first had our encounter and you realized that I was with you. I am still with you. I am still God of Bethel. I am still that Lord that you encountered that day when you made that vow, when you gave the tithe, when you poured the oil, you became a worshiper, you became a giver, you became a follower of me, trusting in me. I'm still that God. Trust me today as you did back then. I've made good on my promises. And the Lord, has he not been faithful to us? Has he not been faithful? Has it been hard? Yes. Has it felt like the cross at times? Yes. But he is faithful. Verse 14, then Rachel and Leah, they answered and said to him, hey, is there still any portion of our inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. For all these riches which God has taken our fa- uh, taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, let's do it. You don't have to convince us. We know who our dad is. Let's move on. And then Jacob arose, that step of faith, and he set his sons and his wives on camels. Three things when people are making decisions, when you're making big decisions. Uh, I think part of it we can glean from this passage, but was the, si- the situation wasn't pleasant for them. It was, it was souring. The circumstances that surround them were oppressive, and that doesn't necessarily mean that God's calling you to move or to move on or to go to left or right. But secondly, the word of God kind of sweetened in their heart. It, it, was, he was, it was speaking to Jacob. Jacob was talking to him. It, there was a, a revival in his heart surrounding the word of God. It was, it was leading and guiding him. It was, it was coming alive. Things, circumstances were bitter, but the, the life of the spirit was, was welling up in him. And lastly, he, he, he confirmed it with the people that he was around. That, and for us, it would be the godly people that are surrounding us, right? And these are the decisions, like if, if this is basically how the Lord brought us up here. There was that, there was that circumstance like it just didn't seem like home anymore. What's going on? What are you doing, Lord? And there was a sweetening of his word in our hearts saying, go. I want you to go. We, and then we confirmed it with godly people in our life who weren't just going to tell us what we wanted to hear, but would tell us what they believed the Lord was leading us in. And sometimes it's contrary, right? And, that's, and, that, and so that circumstances get our attention. Secondly, God speaks. And then thirdly, God confirmed. And lastly, they, they took the step of faith. So Jacob got on his camels with his wives and they took off, right? And he had all his stuff with him. Verse 19, now Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were their father's. Oh, wonderful. And Jacob stole away. He left, unknown to Laban the Syrian, and they did not tell him he intended to flee. He just ditched town. A lot of reading here. So he he fled with them and he had left. And sorry, he fled with all he had. And he rose and crossed the river and he headed towards the mountains of Gilead. And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. And then he took his brethren with him 
And he pursued him for seven days' journey, and he overtook him at the mountains of Gilead. But God, he had come to lay him in the Syrian in a dream by night, and he said to him, be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad, literally from, from good to bad. Don't you start talking good to him and then turn it around on him. Don't threaten Jacob, that's my boy. Verse 25, and so Laban overtook Jacob, and now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and have carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and didn't tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and with songs and tremble and harp. We would have had a party, wouldn't we? If... Yeah, right. And you did not know, allow me to kiss my sons, you know, my grandsons and, and my daughters. And now you've done this foolishly. Uh, in doing so, you've done foolishly in doing so, it is in my power to do you harm. But, clause here, the God of your father spoke to me last night and saying, be careful that you, sp- you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. And now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? How would you like to have gods that could be stolen? Be kidnapped, wouldn't that be sad? Now, Jacob doesn't know that Rachel took him. Verse 31, finishing up here the rest of the chapter. Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I said, Perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force, with whom you find your gods. Don't let him live. Boy, that's crazy. In the presence of your brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Verse 33, And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the two maid's tents, but he did not find them. And then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent, getting warmer. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them under the camel's saddle and sat on them. And Laban searched all around the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for in the manner of women is with me. It's that time of the month, can't move. And he searched, but did not find the household idols. And then Jacob was angry and rebuked them. And Jacob answered and said to them, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren that we may judge between us both. If I steal something, show me the money. He's really just laying it to him. These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. And that which was torn by wild beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. I paid for it out of my own money. You acquired it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was in the day. The drought consumed me and the frost by night, and my sleep departed from my eyes. Thus I have been in your house 20 years. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks. And you have changed my wages 10 times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction, the labor of my hands, and rebuked you last night, buddy. Jacob is ticked, and he's full of anger. He is angry. Three things in closing. He was, verse 36, he was being hotly pursued, furiously chased, Verse 37 through 39, he was falsely charged with stealing. He didn't steal. His wife did, right? In verse 41, he was cheated. He kept changing my way just 10 times. In his mind, he was vindicated in how he felt. 
He was totally right. He was ticked, and rightly so, but the reality is that from Jacob's perspective, he felt, he felt like he was right. He was vindicated in his anger. You ever feel like that? I feel just so, it's just unjust what's going on. But here's the thing. Jacob did not have the full story. Jacob did not know what Rachel had done, someone who was closest to him. And so he's out there making decisions and claims and putting people's life in, in, in jeopardy, and he doesn't have the full picture. And this is what anger does to us. It allows us to make irrational decisions. Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the images. When I feel that way, when I feel like lashing out, I often feel like I have all the information, and I really don't. Um, there's only one who has all the facts. And this is, this is really important for us. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. And so when we feel angry, when we feel vindicated, when we feel right in how we feel, pause and pray. Don't make decisions based upon how you feel. Wait. There are times living in this world where we have to be angry. I mean, how can we not be angry and react to some of the things that are going on in this world? But... I think what our problem is is it's be angry and do not sin. God tells us all the time, do not fear. Fear not, you better not fear. But he says, be angry, but do not sin. Jesus got angry. We talk about righteous anger. But he had the full information. And we, I think we, we don't really struggle with our righteous anger too much, do we? We struggle with the other. And so it's it's, a reminder for us when we feel that way, when we feel angry or frustrated, we feel vindicated in our, in our actions that we pause and we stop and we gather the facts and we pray. We go to the one who knows the circumstances and say, Lord, am I missing something? And that might take a while. That might take a while. And so we wait. We wait on the Lord. We cool down. We get perspective. We pray. We gather the facts and we seek the Lord from wisdom. And then you, then I, will be in a much better frame of mind and attitude of heart that we can act or not act accordingly. Amen? Jacob didn't know that the images were stolen. By the way, I just want to close on this thought. I know there's a lot here. Can't be going through a chapter and a half here. It's easy to say, Rachel, how in the world can you steal these stupid idols, these little wooden images? You know, what are you doing? Or whatever it was, gold or silver. That's just so... Old Testament. You know what I mean? It's just like, can't even connect with that. Let's see, behind each of these images was, was a philosophy. There was a philosophy, and they had a family philosophy. There was these, this idea in their family of whatever that was. And it was represented in this little image that they had made. Ashtaroth was that multi-breasted idol, and it meant had the idea of sensuality behind it. Today we have the same goddess of pornography. Mammon, which is a short, stout little guy, represented money. We don't have the little god Mammon put on our desk, but we do have money today and we do worship it, do we not? Molech, pleasure and prosperity. Baal, or Baal, the intellect and philosophy. All these idols, they represented philosophies. These were not stupid people. We might feel we're just a little bit more sophisticated in our idolatry. Why do you think companies, they brand things? 
They have an image, a logo. That means something. There's a philosophy behind it. Not that it's bad. But there's images mean something. There's something behind it. And Paul would go later on to say and explain that behind each of these false idols that they were worshiping in their day, there was a demonic influence, a demonic presence. They were actually worshiping a demon behind those things. And so it wasn't just Rachel taking an idol, it was what it represented to her. It was what it represented to her. There was a philosophy, an ideology, and it was ingrained in her family. And she took it with her. And the scriptures teach that the Antichrist, he's going to be in, he's going to be, the beast is the image of Satan, incarnate, so to speak. And people are going to be looking at him and you go, how could we possibly sit there and worship this guy or take his mark, his image, whatever, you know. It's not, it's what it represents. Power, security, safety. I'll be able to eat. I will have safety. I will have food. And that kind of looks crazy, but when we are becoming more and more dependent on the power and the safety and security of others, look out. There's a lot less of a jump from one end to the other. So when you look at the end times and people are just taking the mark, it's not that they are, I don't think, indirectly worshiping the beast. They're saying in an, ideal, an, an idolistic manner, I look to you for my life. And we are to a people to look to God for provision, God for security, God for safety, God for our, he is the I am. And so there's a great, uh, we gotta watch our hearts. Gotta watch our hearts. And I'll, I'll leave that, that there. So, And anyways, they made up this place and we'll talk about it next time. So Lord, we just come to you now and we, and we pray that you would have, there would be no other idols before you, no v- vain philosophies, things that seem wise to men and meet the carnal needs in our hearts, but are really void of your word and your wisdom. God, we pray that we would get our information, our 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 marching orders from your word, from your spirit, and not this world around us. It seems so wise. It seems so like it will satisfy. Help us to be a people who walk by the spirit. Even when things look awkward and weird, help us to know you and to make you known to the world around us. Help us to walk onto those waters and part them for us, Lord. Not that people would look at us and go, look how amazing they are. We would, they would know that you are alive and that you too are with them. Lord, thank you for sending your son, the bridge from heaven and earth. No man comes to the Father except for you. And just want to ask this morning if anybody has never said, God, save me. God, forgive me my sins. God, forgive me. If you've never been there, and it might seem awkward, it might seem weird to say, oh, well, I give my heart to God. Just abandon, abandon yourself to him and trust that Jesus paid all of your sins, 
They're gone. If you trust in him, it seems weird to believe in a man who died 2,000 years ago. But that is the gospel, that through faith, we can be forgiven and have eternal life. If you need that in your life, raise your hand, pop it up and down. I won't make you come up, but we'll pray for you. Any of you? Well, God bless you. We're going to pray, and we're going to go ahead and dismiss. Lord, we pray for the people in this room, Lord, that you continue to minister to them. Continue to lead all of us closer to you this morning. Lord, I need it. Lord, would you guide the rest of our fellowship this morning? Would you help us as we eat to enjoy the fellowship of one another, the company of one another? Would you lead us in our meeting today that your will would come forward, Lord, in our lives? We are just simply looking to you. We thank you for this fellowship and for this time and the food we'll have. In the name of Jesus, amen.